is great uh, to be with you here this morning. And uh, we are ending, not ending, but we're in this series called Parables. And and Jesus told these parables. We've talked about them before. These these stories that he told for uh, you know a purpose. Each one. But ultimately, the purpose was this, and he spoke about that, that, that these parables would, would serve to help people know where they stood with him, where they stood with God. He talked about the fact that those people, of course, who would hear him and understand would be his followers, and then there'd be other people who would hear these parables, and they just wouldn't get it, and therefore they couldn't live out what he was talking about. So these parables were essential. They were an essential part of his ministry. And so as, we, as I was taking a look at this parable we're taking a look at today, I couldn't help but uh, be reminded of a guy by the name of Yusuf the Turk. You ever heard of this guy? Yusuf the Turk. Any hands out there? Well, he was a professional wrestler. That's who he was. He actually lived before you and I ever lived. And he came here to the United States from overseas on several different occasions, the last of which was to fight uh, Strangler Lewis for the world championship title. The winner of that bout, would receive a staggering amount of money, $5,000, if you can believe it. Well, Yusuf won the match, and uh, it was time for him to receive his money, but he didn't want to get paid in cash. He wanted to get paid in gold, and that's what they gave him. He then took that gold, those golden bars, and stashed them underneath his championship belt that he refused to take off. This is a true story. So, so he boards the ship to cross the Atlantic. He still wore that championship belt. He didn't take his money and he didn't put it in the safe that was there. He didn't put it in his locked room. No, he wore it underneath his belt wherever he went on that ship. Well, halfway across the Atlantic, the ship began to sink. In an attempt to save his own life, he jumped for a lifeboat and missed he plunged into the water and then suddenly sank like a stone to the ocean floor. His golden championship belt had become a golden anchor that quickly ended his own life. So you're probably thinking, well, that's a great story, Phil. I feel better already. I'm so glad I, glad I came here today. That's, that's just awesome. Thanks for sharing that. So what does he have to do with us? Well, if you look at America in general, there are so many people who are spiritually drowning They've got their fingers clenched around their golden anchor, those things they're chasing after, those things they find so all-important, they're being weighed down. And God is speaking to them, saying, you know what, there is a far better way. I want you to live. Do you hear me? That's exactly what Jesus was saying to this young man who came to him one day in Luke chapter 12. In fact, I encourage you, open your Bibles, iPads, iPhones, whatever you use, to Luke chapter 12. This is an incredible, incredible story that leads to a parable. And this young man, he comes to Christ one day, and not the most respectful of ways, really. And he comes, and the, and the scripture lays it out this way. Someone in the crowd, verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, meaning Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, back then in the first century, if you had a, a dispute with the law and you wanted it settled, you would come to a rabbi in order to settle it. And so this is what this younger man does. Now, it's very clear from the account already that he is a younger brother in the family. He's got an older brother. Because the law stated very clearly that the eldest brother was the one to be the executor of the will as soon as the father passed away. And the elder brother, back in those days, he had full control, full power to do what he wanted with that estate. And this is the younger brother trying to get some for himself. Now, 
the reality is back then a good older brother would never divide the estate. You wouldn't do that. An elder brother would keep the estate whole. Therefore, you know, the, all the brothers, all the sisters, all the children, they would all live on that estate, sharing it together because they would live in community. That was an essential part of their life and how they embraced it. And yet this younger brother comes to Jesus not with a request. He's not asking. He's telling. He tells Jesus, here's what I want you to do. And I want you to support me in this because I want my money right now. To this, Jesus responded. Take a look. He says, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Jesus kind of steps back, as I imagine, saying, you know what? I'm not getting in the middle of this. For a variety of different reasons. First of all, there's no matter of the law here to solve because it's already clear your older brother has the authority to do what he wants here. So there's nothing for me to get involved in here. You know, secondly, as he took a look at this, of course, Jesus would take a look at his own mission. And what he's saying here is, you know what? My mission, my discipleship is all about changing hearts. It's all about changing lives. It's all about changing the world. That's my mission. I don't have time for such trivial matters. And it serves as a lesson for us all because as we follow Christ, as we keep our eyes on him and we want to be just like him, there are so many different things that will seek to divert our attention that seem to be important at the time. And we, like Jesus, have to keep our eyes laser focused on the mission, the mission before us. And so now he has this interaction with this guy, but they're not alone. I want you to know this. There's a a group of people, a crowd that's listening to this whole thing. And so now Jesus, he did what any good rabbi would do in that situation. He used it as a teaching opportunity for everyone who's there. And so he looks at the crowd and he says this. Take a look. Watch out, Jesus says. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Here, Jesus, he's issuing a warning for them. He's issuing a warning, really, for all of us. You see, if we're honest, if we, if we look at our life, if we look at our culture around us, sometimes we look at those big sins of society, those ones that other people do, like murder, stealing. Those are the bad things. And yet Christ here addresses something in society, a sin that plagues us all. He's saying the same words to all of us here today. Watch out. Watch out. Be on guard against all kinds of greeds. So let me ask you. Are you on guard? Are you on guard against all kinds of greed in your life? Are you? Because greed is that little guy on your shoulder that keeps whispering, you know what? What you have isn't quite good enough. What someone else has is just a little bit better. And it's time for you to get a little bit more for yourself. You see, as Christians, we know that what Jesus said is right in our minds, in our heads. We know that what Jesus said is right. That you should not measure a man based on his possessions. We know that that's right. But in our hearts... We often live like that's the greatest lie told to mankind because we chase after this. We chase after that. We put ourselves in debt in order to go after all these things. It was no different back in the days of Christ. And so what did Jesus do in response? In order to help people understand how serious this matter was, he told them one of his parables. And he turns the page and the story begins. And he says, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And so the story begins, and there's nothing wrong. This is beautiful, right? All is good. We have a man who's very, very wealthy. He's got a bunch of land. It's producing a lot of crops for him. He's really well off. 
You see, friends, God has never had anything against somebody prospering. Nothing wrong with that at all. In fact, God often used people who were very rich. He called Abraham in the Old Testament. He was a wealthy man, very wealthy man of his time. The Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. David, as the king, was very prosperous. His son Solomon was even richer than he was. In fact, the the Old Testament tells us that Solomon was richer and wealthier than all the other kings of the earth. And so as Jesus begins this story, there's nothing wrong. This man had prospered. But yet there is something else that's wrong. And it comes in this man's next statement. He asks himself this question, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. But he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. There's about at least three themes in this man's statement. Do you see some of them? Take a look again and take a look at the underlying words. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. But he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Leads to three insights about this man. The first is this. His life was defined by I and my. His life was defined by I and my. He wasn't thinking about his friends. He wasn't thinking about his family. He wasn't thinking about his neighbors. He wasn't thinking about anyone else in need. It was all about what he had, protecting what he had, and getting more. And in his mind, he deserved all the good things that were coming to him. And you might notice as well, he didn't credit God with anything that he had. And it's so easy for us to fall into this. To take a look at, you know, our careers or whatever we're doing and say, well, no, I'm, I'm at this point in my life because I did this and I did that and I made this decision. It's easy to fall into an I and my lifestyle. This guy did. Second lesson was this, that his life was defined by bigger is better. He clearly thought that the path to a good life was defined not just by having good things, but by having bigger things, right? A bigger house, a bigger car, a bigger boat. A bigger kitchen, a bigger pool, a bigger vacation. Bigger is better, right? Especially if you live in Texas, it's it's better. But it's not. And so this guy's life was defined by I and my. His life was defined by bigger is better. And his life was defined by plenty and pleasure. See, in his mind, if he worked things just right, if he really planned and strategized just right, his future years, his retirement, if you would, would be filled with plenty of relaxation, Drinking, walks on the beach, golfing, tanning, partying. And that leads us to this rope. I don't know if you noticed it, but it's up here. This rope, I want you to imagine it represents your life, the timeline of your life. I first saw Francis Chan teach this a year or so ago. This is your life. And I want you to imagine that this is your life. And as you notice, it just keeps going and going and going And going. I want you to imagine that the rope never ends because your life never ends. You're going to live not just a hundred years or a thousand years. You're going to live millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of years. So this is your life, the totality of your life. It just keeps going. But here's the problem. We tend to focus on this section right here. 
the red section of our life. I mean, we got all this life in front of us, and we focus right here. This represents our life here on this earth. And so we focus on this. We hold on to this. So I want you to imagine, this is your life, this red portion, at least here on earth. And so right here, you're born. You're about two or three years old. Now you're in preschool and kindergarten. And now you're going to elementary school and junior high school and high school. Now you're in college and now you graduated. And you started your job and you got married. And then you worked and you worked and you worked and you worked and you worked like crazy. You kept working and working. Just, you know, your life, you're sweating. You're doing everything you can to work and accumulate and accumulate. And then you do all of that so you get to this little portion of your life where you hopefully can walk on a beach and experience some retirement. You know, golf, have all this kind of fun. You reach this point only then to die and experience all of this. Isn't that crazy when you think about it? Just the last service. I was towards the end of my message and I heard a loud sound from back over here. And a man fell and... uh, and uh, I'm told he actually died. And I couldn't even end what I was saying. We had to go into a time of prayer and just excuse the service. And it just showed me again how short life is. But you know what happened? Immediately, one of the reasons why I had to stop is we had about 50 people over there that started praying. I started praying. I just stopped what I was saying. And we all just prayed for him that God would heal. I didn't even know what was going on. Heal him, restore him, save him, whatever was going on. They actually revived him. And they took him away. And he's living and doing well. But you know what? This is your life. This is your life. This goes on and on. And yet, we keep focusing on this. So important to us. I want you to think about that. Because the psalmist writes this. He said, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And the idea here, of course, is that we would say, you know, it's, it's not that I don't believe that there's God. It's just that I, I'm kind of him. I'm kind of him. In fact, if we back up in Luke 12, verse 20, God looks to this man and the mindset that this man had about the red portion of his life. And he says this, but God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is a rich that is not rich toward God. And so we have a man, his life was defined by I and my. His life was defined by bigger is better. His life was defined by plenty and pleasure. Sounds like a good American, doesn't he? Really? This leads us to insights about possessions. And from the same story so far, we have this. Here's the first lesson. What we call foresightedness, God calls foolishness. What we call foresightedness, God calls foolishness. You see, we think we have so much foresight. People will share their stories. I've heard many stories through my life. You know, somebody will say, well, the reason why I have what I have is because I owned a bunch of this stock. It went really high, and I thought, you know what, it's going to go down, so I sold it all. And you wouldn't you know the stock actually plummeted. And then I bought a whole bunch more, and then it went back up, and that's why I have what I had, because I saw that that was going to happen. Story after story, you know, and I sold this house, bought that house. It doubled in value, then I bought over here. All this foresight that we have. And yet, Jesus is saying, what we call foresightedness, God calls foolishness. It's foolishness. Paul writes about this. He says, the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. 
Let's be honest for a moment. If we're all going to just have a conversation and talk about God, we probably all would agree on the fact that God knows it all. He knows it all. And since God knows it all, the question is, how much foresight do you think we actually have? Very, very little. That's why we should be seeking him and what he has to say about our life, the totality of our life. Second lesson, what we call ours, God calls his. What we call ours, God calls his. You see, in our foolishness, we tend to think that whatever we, success we've had in our life, whatever we've achieved, whatever we have accumulated, it's due to us. It's due to us, and as a result, it's ours. It's not as a result of the fact that God gave me life and breath and talents and skills and foresight and all the things needed to have all that I have. It's due to us. What we call ours, God calls his. That's why God responded to the man and said this. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. See, this guy learned a lesson a little bit too late. And the lesson is this, that God owns it all and he loans it to us. God owns it all, and he loans it to us. And once again, we know this in our minds, but yet in our heart, it's not quite so clear. So what would be some signs? What would be signs for you or for me that, you know, we know that God owns it all and he loans it to us, but yet we kind of approach life in our hearts like we own it all? What would be some signs? Well, I want you to imagine yourself, you won't have to imagine too hard, that you're, you're going through the drive through you're picking up some hamburgers, some french fries, Wendy's, or Burger King, or whatever. And you make your order. And then the person on the other side, you know, kind of tallies it up. And they ask this question. Uh, would you like to donate a dollar to? And then they list the cause. And suddenly, I mean, for some people, right, it's like, well, I came here for hamburgers and french fries. I didn't come here to donate. And suddenly we've got this gymnastics going on in our mind. I mean, should I give a dollar? Should I not give a dollar? And sometimes we do because we feel guilty. Sometimes we don't. And then we feel guilty when we drive away because we know that we probably should. And the reason why we, we struggle with this, this dollar, is because we're so focused on this. And we're so worried that when we get to the end of our life, we're going to miss out on that last cup of coffee because we gave that dollar away, right? And this is what we're so consumed by. We're consumed by this. Or think about this. And I've done this before. You know, somebody, for example, would say, I can't even pay next month's rent. They're going to get kicked out in the street. And you think to yourself, you know what? I can do that. I, I can do that. I don't want them out on the street. I mean, I've got the money. I, I, I can do that. And so we start thinking about, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. But then it dawns on us, well, next month I'm going on vacation. And if I give that money to them, well, then I'm not going to have the money I need to do everything I wanted to do on my vacation. That's kind of a bummer. And then we have another conversation with ourselves, eventually talking ourselves out of the good thing that we knew we should do. You ever been there? I've done that. Or would be another sign, how is it that we respond to God? God is the one who gave us life. He gave us breath. He gave us everything that we have. He owns it all, and, and, and he loans it to us, right? And then in the Bible, it says, you know, even though he owns it all and he loans it to us, he's saying, you know what, with what you make, just give me a tithe back. Tithe, 10%. And some Christians over time say, well, that's just an Old Testament thing. It's not a New Testament thing. Well, actually it is. Matthew 23, 23, Jesus here talks very clearly about the tithe, about 10% that we are to give it. And yet, for so many Christians, we know this in our heads, but in our heart, we do something else. 
In fact, I, I was at a, a conference here. Uh, it was actually held here at our church about six months ago, and a guy spoke from California, and he, he speaks on this. A lot of research on this regarding Christians and, and giving finances, and here's the stat he put up. 17% of Christians say they tithe, but only 3% actually give 10% of their income to God. Only 3%. You think, where are the other 97%? Well, they're focused on the red portion of their lives. And you see, friends, God doesn't need our money. He doesn't need our money. What he needs is our hearts. Our hearts. Jesus spoke more about money than many other subjects because he knew that when it comes to money, our heart gets pretty hard, gets pretty closed. And if we will but give just 10% back to God, it's a sign saying, God, you want it all. Thank you for all that you've done. And we have a thankful heart. But many times we close it and we give less or we don't give at all. And we do well to join with the psalmist who said this, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. What we call foresightedness, God calls foolishness. What we call ours, God calls his. And what we call acquisition, God calls disbursement. Disbursement. Think about it. We work, we plan, we strategize, we sweat, blood and tears, working and, and trying to accumulate, make sure that we, we have a, a good, you know, nest egg, you know, when we retire, and then suddenly we die and we have everything stripped from our hands, right? And then given to somebody else. Somebody else who hasn't worked, who hasn't planned, who hasn't worked so hard to acquire all these things. They get the blessing, not us. That's why God looks at the man and says, then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? They get the blessing, not you. To add to this, Jesus said, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. See, Jesus here is talking about us. And since he's talking about us, it raises a question for all of us, myself included. How then shall we live? How then shall we live? Well, we have to live according to God's call on our lives. But we also should live in a way that we invest what he has loaned us wisely. But what does that look like? Well, there's one thing that keeps us from investing wisely. There's one thing. Isn't it nice when you can boil it down to just one thing? There's just one thing that keeps us from not really investing our resources and what we have in the way that God desires for us to do. And it's called worry. Worry. It's, it's worry. We're so worried that if we do that, if we give something away, it's going to impact this. And so worry cramps us up. It keeps us from doing the things that we are to do. And this is why Christ said this. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat. Wait a second. If I don't eat, I'm going to die. Shouldn't I be worried about that? And what he's saying is this. We must not worry over essential things, even like food. Your, your meal, the next meal you're going to have, shouldn't worry about it. And he says this because the God who made you, who designed you, who gave you all these gifts and gave you life and breath, the God who loves you, is going to make sure you have the bread and the water, whatever it is you need to live on. Let's not worry over essential things. Corey Ten Boom wrote this. She says, worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. Think about that. Think about that. That's why Jesus told us not to worry about essential things like food or, he says, about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. 
and how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon, this incredibly rich king, right, in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. That is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire. How much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? You see, when God made the world, it was perfect. It was beautiful. And in that perfect world, God made Adam and Eve. And if you look at Genesis, you'll find it very clear that Adam and Eve did just fine without sporting the latest style of clothing. They did. In fact, the Bible says when Christ comes back again, he's going to set everything right, back to where it was, perfection. And I got a real strong hunch here that clothing is not going to be that important when that happens either. So Jesus is saying this, we must not worry over non-essential things. Not essential things like the things that we're wearing. He says, because if you do, does it add a day to your life, he asked? Does it? Well, 2,000 years later, science has confirmed what Jesus said. In fact, our worrying over non-essential things not only doesn't add a day to our life, it actually shortens our life up to six years of time. And even so, we keep worrying. We keep worrying over things. We worry about how the past might impact our present. We worry over present things we can't seem to control. And we worry over future things. Most likely, most of them won't even happen, and yet we worry over them. And as one person wrote, and I love this, they said, worry is a thin stream of fear trickling through the mind. If encouraged, it cuts a channel into which all other thoughts are drained. You ever been there? Where all of your thoughts are somehow corrupted with this worry. And Jesus is saying, will you worry or will you trust me? Because Jesus, our Lord, continued. He says, and do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after such things. These futile things, they're running after, Jesus says. They're after the latest car, the latest shoes, the latest this, the latest that. He says, and your heavenly Father, he knows what you need. He knows what you need. So seek his kingdom, and what you need will be given to you. Jesus said, we must not worry over futile things. Futile things. So if we're Christians, friends, and we worry over the same things that that people who aren't of the faith do, like we have the same ambitions and goals and and all the stuff that everyone else has, in a sense it proves our lack of faith. Because if we worry like the faithless do, you've got to wonder where our faith is. In fact, such actions and worrying over these futile things and chasing after them show either we don't trust our Heavenly Father or understand how our Heavenly Father views us. I mean, do you know that when God looks at you, he sees a treasure, somebody who's prized. Do you know the Bible says that when God looks at you, he sings over you, he dances over you, he celebrates over you. You are that loved by him. And since he loves you that much, he's going to take care of you. He's got your back. That's what Jesus is saying. So then Christ moves from, you know, addressing three worthless things that we worry about to focusing on something much more profitable and productive. He says, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart, there is that heart word, will be also. And Jesus is saying, if you're going to worry, well, then 
You must worry over profitable things. Profitable things. See, friends, we must be very concerned. And we must concern ourselves over a proper pursuit of God. In fact, the idea that we would make decisions and live in such a way that would dishonor him and not really you know, worship him for who he is by withholding what we have should concern us greatly. It should cause us a certain amount of anxiety. See, we're called to be a people who replace our concerns with, of these secondary things by focusing on the primary thing, the very heart of God. And in order to focus on the very heart of God, it means that we have to think and live very radically and differently regarding our possessions. Rather than grasping after them, we should have our hands wide open saying, God, how do you want to use me? How do you want to use what I have to further your kingdom so that more people can get to know you and that they can experience the same eternal life that I get to have? Ultimately, Jesus was saying this. It's not the amount of our treasures, but the investment of them that matters. It's not the amount of our treasures, but the investment of them that matters. So friends, do you trust God enough to make an eternal investment in his kingdom rather than building up your own, this red section of our lives? What does it look like to lay it all before him and say, God, since you own it all and you loan it to me, I want to give you everything. I want my heart to be that open. That's what I want, God. See, on our money, it says this, in God we trust. It says that. In fact, there have been people over time that have tried to get that removed from our money, but it still says, in God we trust. So the question is this, do we trust God on our money, or do we trust God with our money? We all just close your eyes and pray here for just a moment. I want to give you the opportunity to respond to God. And just have a conversation with him and say, God, what what does it look like for me to really take part in expanding your kingdom instead of expanding my own? What does it look like for me if I'm giving you 3% of my income to take one step further towards you in obedience and honoring of you and give 4% this year? What might that look like? What does it look like for me to have a soft heart that's open with hands wide open instead of fists that are clenched. God, what does it look like for me to get to get rid of that golden anchor in my life so that I can embrace you? God's desire for you, friend, his desire for me is that we'll live lives that honor him in every facet of our lives. That also includes what we have and what he's given to us. So right now, as we respond and worship and prayer, turn everything over to him, will you? And allow him to have control of every facet of your life, including your money. But Jesus, we thank you. We thank you because you surrendered your will. You surrendered your will to the Father that night in the garden. And you followed through with what your Father asked. And as a result, we can know life today. We can know forgiveness today, a relationship with you today. And we thank you that you surrendered it all. You laid it on the line for us. And so, Lord, help us to live lives of surrender. That we would surrender our thoughts. We'd surrender our opinions. We'd surrender all kinds of things. 
including our money and our wealth or whatever you've given to us, God, that we'd surrender it all to you. You laid it on the line for us, and we want to lay it on the line for you. That's the beauty of the relationship we have with you, and we thank you. We're humbled. And to this, our prayer is, I surrender. I surrender. May you be glorified. Stand with us as we close out with this song. Sing, I surrender.